Hi, this is Dr. Russ Kennedy, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, where we talk about everything new in healing anxiety. So stay with us. Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast. I am your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, and I am the Anxiety MD. And I call myself the Anxiety MD because I'm an MD who struggled with anxiety for many, many years. And traditional therapies, talk therapies, medications really weren't helping me. So I basically had to do the physician heal thyself thing and find my way to healing. And part of my way to healing was to take psychedelics. And I took LSD, I took ayahuasca, I took psilocybin and MDMA as well, but MDMA isn't classically a psychedelic. Not to get high, but to try and understand my anxious mind. Try to use my doctorate in medicine and my degree in neuroscience and developmental psychology in helping me understand what was going on in my mind and my body that was just not being treated by traditional methods. So I found LSD, ayahuasca, and psilocybin very helpful at getting outside of my ego and actually really observing what anxiety truly was for me, which was basically an alarm that was stored in my body from unresolved trauma from my childhood. And this has really helped me understand how to treat anxiety as more of a body issue than a mind issue. And this is why I was taking all sorts of talk therapy and understanding exactly why I was anxious, but it wasn't really fixing the problem. I didn't fix the problem until LSD basically showed me where the alarm was stored in my body. And once I knew what the underlying cause of my anxiety was, I could go about treating it. I could find a pathway to treating it, which I have and which I've written about in my book, Anxiety Rx. And I've given you chapter 53 out of my book, Anxiety Rx, and it was written on 108 chapters. This chapter is about 20 minutes long. And don't worry, they're not all that long. Some of the chapters are just a page long, but this is one of the longer ones because it's one of the more important ones. It's one of the ones that really showed me where my anxiety was in the form of alarm and what I could do about it. So without further ado, here's chapter 53 in the book Anxiety Rx with the hope that it really helps you understand where your anxiety might be coming from and what you might be able to do about it. And at the end of this chapter, I will come on and sign off. So thanks again for listening. Chapter 53, Dark Night of the Soul. I didn't become the anxiety whisperer without earning it. My experiences with psychedelics were invaluable at getting me to consider a non-traditional approach. While it's true my trips, quote-unquote, on psychedelics were revelational and fruitful, those insights also came at a great cost. While LSD was a very intense experience, full of alarm with both intensely beautiful and intensely frightening hallucinations, ayahuasca was the hands-down, unequivocal, heavyweight champion of frightening experiences. In fall 2014, I was still recovering from a full Achilles rupture and the subsequent surgery 18 months earlier. I was losing weight, not sleeping, and dealing with unrelenting background and foreground alarm for many hours every day. I had friends who had significant recoveries from depression using this psychedelic medicine called ayahuasca, and I was desperate for relief. A year earlier, in September 2013, I had limped my post-op leg 14,835 kilometers from Vancouver to Beijing to Bangkok to Chennai, 
okay, okay, I didn't limp the entire way there, but I limped when I wasn't on an airplane or in a taxi to live at a temple in India, where I was assured by the monks that after their program, I would be anxiety-free. Other than a 90-minute episode of what I can only describe as enlightenment, where I became one with everything, I can't express to you in words the disappointment when I returned home from Chennai to Taipei to Vancouver, still limping, to find my anxiety had not significantly improved. I still marvel at the fact I actually made that trip because I was so mentally and physically impaired. To this day, I firmly believe the only reason I was able to make it was the support of my future wife, whom I'd met just weeks before that trip. When I met Cynthia in June 2013 at a personal development retreat, I was at the lowest point of my life, both mentally and physically debilitated. But I also knew for a month before I got to the retreat that I was going to meet my future wife there. I don't want to weird you out, but I have this psychic-y, clairsentient ability, and I've had it since I was a child. It makes me a good doctor in that I can read people and the energy around them, and it especially helps me see where someone's alarm is coming from. Much of the material from this book comes from my ability to see things most people do not. Curiously, it's grown in me since I left the practice of medicine. Maybe something to do with not having to think in the linear terms of a physician. When I met Cynthia, it was one of those meetings you just know were going to be life-changing. She was beautiful and vulnerable. I could see her energy was kind and giving, but I also saw her pain. There's a tremendous bond we have in healing ourselves and others. She has since become a somatic trauma therapist, and we have learned so much from each other, both personally and professionally. She's shown me that it's actually safe to love. The primary thing that's really kept me going over the years since leaving the official practice of medicine is my relationship with Cynthia. Back to my experience with ayahuasca. Buoyed by my fellow comics' stories of miraculous relief from mental suffering and addiction, I was desperate and optimistic to try something that might actually work. I found a shaman who would, for a significant amount of money, guide me through a private two-night ayahuasca experience in a small town in British Columbia, about a two-hour drive from Vancouver. I expected to find a shaman with a name like Ekron or Dorkuk or Norbundo. These are real shaman's names. But you know what this eternal divine mystic's name was? Dave. Yes, Dave. The name Dave didn't inspire a lot of confidence, but again, I was desperate. So a couple of weeks later, in October 2014, I had two successive nights dancing with the snake called ayahuasca. The first night I sat in front of Dave while he mixed the medicine, and I was about 22 times as scared as I would be of flying. And I was pretty scared of flying. Dave did some more incantations. He had an assistant, Paul. Cynthia was there with me, but she did not want to do the medicine. Buddha was there too, for canine support. I took the cup from Dave and swallowed it in one gulp. It tasted like bitter seaweed. I went back to my place across from Dave and waited. And waited. In a way, I was less scared than before because now I was committed. The long wait to do this was over. I closed my eyes and started to see the most intense purple, blue, and pink geometric figures and shapes. Then everything seemed to disappear but the vivid colors. I was in a new world I couldn't even begin to explain. Even as I write this, I can feel my alarm come up. I had the sense I was falling, which was very disturbing. More disturbing was that I was trying to understand what the word falling meant. I was trying to make sense of what was happening, 
but I had no brain function that I could understand. I felt I did understand and I could explain what was happening, but when I tried, there were no concepts I could use to explain it. Apparently, I kept repeating out loud, and I don't remember this, there's nothing to hold on to. I have no memory of saying this, but I have often felt, in times of deep alarm and anxiety, that there was nothing to hold on to. I think this is the same way I felt as a young teen when I was grasping for something, anything, to support me or give me reference for what was happening. At the mercy of the serpentine mother ayahuasca, I was being shown the well-grooved pattern my mind and body had defaulted into, and it was terrifying. At least when I'm going through anxiety and alarm in my daily life, I can do some yoga, focus on my breath, or even just distract myself. Now, I was faced with my alarm and anxiety full force, and I had no defense at all. As I write this now, it makes perfect sense to me why this was so terrifying. I have decades of background alarm repressed and stored in my body. To get away from this pain in my body, I escaped into my head and became an elite-level worrier. I even went into a profession that required massive intellectual investment and became even better at using my mind. I used thinking as a way of escaping feeling. Thinking and worrying in my head became my coping strategy to avoid the feeling in my body. I ran up and hid in my head for decades. And then I ingested a substance that removed my ability to think. All those decades of pain that I had avoided, I was suddenly defenseless against. In the open-air Land Rover that is life, I had removed my protective blanket of thought and was now face-to-face with the lions of my past. And they were ripping me apart. I have never experienced anything as ghastly, grim, hideous, and horrifying as that experience on ayahuasca. If I got anything out of ayahuasca, it is that in life, there is truly nothing to hold on to, especially my thoughts. There was no thing to hold on to. Ayahuasca showed me the only thing to hold on to is something that is not hold on to a bull, and that is faith. Faith is not a tangible thing. You can't pick faith up and move it from one place to another. My mind-based world love concrete concepts, but faith is ethereal. Faith is not of the mind as much as it is of the body. With my ability to think removed, I could still have faith that this human experience is its own illusion and that we are truly connected to something that has no resemblance to the human body. In that experience, I was shown that there is a universal wisdom that has order, and death is sometimes a part of that order. Your human form may die, but the essence of you will always be a part of the fabric of consciousness. I was shown the more I try to make sense of things, the more man-made and ultimately wrong it could be. I was shown that I am the grape-colored Kool-Aid, there's that purple color again, in the eternal water of existence, and that my human form borrows the suspension of the water, but is not it. This last sentence makes sense to me, And it likely won't make sense to you, but it'll give you an idea of a sense of what my mind did on ayahuasca. Here's another ayahuasca-ism. I was shown that I don't know, and trying to know is different from knowing. There, I know that sounds vague and nonsensical. That's a little taste of what psychedelics do to impair your reasoning. I was also given a sense that I overthink. There's a big surprise, but... 
more directly that my mind-based perceptions were subjective and very often dead wrong. What I see as bad may well be one of the best things that has happened and vice versa. For example, something I assumed was bad, my anxiety, has pointed me towards becoming more connected to myself than I've ever been. In contrast, something I viewed as good, getting into medical school and becoming a medical doctor, may actually have been one of the worst things for me. In many ways, becoming a doctor took me further away from my real self by forcing me deeper into my head, and thus out of my body, with the massive amount of information I had to memorize. In addition, becoming a doctor put me in a chronic environment of illness, and more importantly, mental illness, which is where my background alarm originated as I watched my father become sicker and sicker. I had to realize that my perception of good and bad was a story I became locked into, and in my compulsion to reduce uncertainty and make sense of my life, I was unable to see the messages that would allow me to heal. As Dr. Wayne Dyer put it, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. But if you never question or renew your perceptions, you'll never see the deeper meaning of your suffering. You'll live Groundhog Day over and over. You're a hostage to your own pattern of perceptions and the stories you create based on those rigid perceptions, most of which were created by the fearful child in you. My perception was that being a doctor was saving me when in reality it was sinking me. What I perceived as my anchor and a force keeping me grounded was an anchor all right, but it was dragging me to the bottom. Ayahuasca allowed me to renew, or at least revisit, the perception that everything was up to me and I had to know everything. With that experience, I saw I was like the tree surgeon who had to give it up because he realized he couldn't stand the sight of sap. Although I certainly wouldn't describe it as pleasant, my psychedelic dance with the snake was enlightening. Ayahuasca showed me faith in a higher order that my simple mind-based interpretations, thoughts, and mental constructs of good and bad could not see. Because as a child I had not received the support I needed to resolve my alarm, I had concluded that I was solely responsible for protecting myself from the vicissitudes of life. Becoming a doctor furthered the illusion and kept me trapped in my belief that life could be figured out if I only tried hard enough. Being a doctor hadn't helped with my chronic alarm. In fact, it reinforced my mind-based story that I had the power to go at life alone. Here's the kicker. I had adopted the unconscious assumption that I needed to look after myself and my parents around 13 years old and had been carrying it around ever since. How accurate and complete do you think any 13-year-old boy's understanding of life is? I had built a house of cards based on my own intellect and pseudo-independence. Ayahuasca knocked it down. There was a tremendous, excruciating, confusing pain in my ayahuasca experience, but the gift was two realizations. That faith means I don't have to do it all myself, and my perceptions of what is good or bad for me may be entirely inaccurate. It allowed me to see there is wisdom that goes far beyond my own personal, subjective experience. There was something to hold on to. I just couldn't see it because my mind can't see and touch faith. That is the job of the body, and I had left my body behind when I was 13. In the days after ayahuasca, I was a complete mess. My only source of security, my thoughts, was not secure at all. In fact, my worried thoughts were one of the main reasons I was so miserable. 
but now I couldn't even hold on to them. I could not go into my body because that's where my background alarm was, and now I've been shown that my mind was also verboten. In the days following ayahuasca, I was as close to suicide as I've ever been. The background alarm in my body had reached nuclear proportions due to the destabilizing psychedelic experience, and my mind had been fractured severely by that same psychedelic. There was truly nowhere to go and nothing to hold on to for me. Thank goodness for one thing I did see on Aya. Slowly, I began to realize that I was somehow protected. By what, I don't know. But I could develop faith in that. I didn't have to do it all by myself anymore. I didn't have to be that 13-year-old who pretended he had it all under control when deep down he knew he was just a kid and woefully unprepared for guiding his own life, let alone being a physician to guide others. With this realization, I understood why my whole career as a doctor, I felt like an imposter. I was just playing doctor, not in the way that Jack Hammer Johnson played doctor in some of his movies, but I did feel like a child in a doctor costume. Even though I did a good job as a physician and had an exemplary record, part of me felt that I was a 13-year-old boy in an oversized white lab coat and stethoscope around my neck. Ayahuasca showed me I didn't have to rely only on that persona. In fact, I could leave it behind and have faith in a new path, the path of belief that I am protected and guided, and I don't have to do it all as my 13-year-old self. As a child who took it upon himself to look after his parents and himself, I had given up on someone looking after me. Now I knew there was something that looks after me, and that it came from faith inside my body and had nothing to do with the machinations of my mind. The security of that knowing is what brought me on the path to write this book. I've talked to many people who struggle with chronic worry and doubt who became caregivers at an early age, and I've noticed many of them lost faith in life. When you lose faith in life, you begin to think you're the ultimate arbiter of good and bad. I became an alpha child, very strong, and hated to be told what to do. And that's because part of me needed to know everything and do everything my way. But in making yourself God, there is nobody or nothing to look up to or have faith in. At the same time, I became overconfident in my abilities. Part of me knew that I was overcompensating, and I have been overcompensating since I was 13 years old. As a result... I developed a mindset where everything was up to me, and at the very same time, I felt like a fraud, insecure about my abilities. Of course I was anxious. On one hand, I had convinced myself that I was the most competent person in the world, and on the other, I knew I was in way over my head. It would be almost like having no experience whatsoever and being thrust into the job as the President of the United States and just faking my way through, although that could never happen. That first night was not the end of my ayahuasca experience. David told me in no uncertain terms that I must drink at least two nights. The first night is an acclimatization, and it is only on the subsequent drink that I would learn what I needed to begin healing. I know I'm a strong person because after what was hands down the most terrifying, disorienting, soul-ripping episode of my life to which nothing had come close before or since, the next night I went back for another round. The second night was less terrifying, but still highly disturbing. I again saw the purple, pink, and orange geometric hallucinations, but I hate to tell you that I had no profound shifts in my mind or body that relieved my anxiety and alarm. Dave was wrong. 
The next morning, as I was helping Dave load up his stuff into his car to leave, he told me that he'd had anxiety for many years and had done ayahuasca close to a thousand times. He said it helped considerably with his depression, but in specifically addressing his anxiety, he said it hadn't really helped him that much. I said to him, what the fuck am I doing here then? Sorry for the language, but I needed the best word to express frustration, and hell, although I had just visited there for two nights, didn't seem to describe the angst I felt when I heard that. After my disappointment in India, and then this, I was at an extremely low point. I had such high hopes for relief, and once again they'd been dashed. For the two days after returning home from Aya, I did not have that sense of connection. I was out of my mind. I had a real sense of what my father went through, and to say it was groundless, terrifying, empty, confusing, disorienting, vacant, and otherworldly would be an understatement. At that time, I felt ayahuasca was a total bust, and I'd never recommend anyone with anxiety or control issues put themselves through it. It took away the anchors I had put in place to feel in control, and in many ways, it re-traumatized me as I don't think I've ever been closer to suicide than in the week following those two nights with the snake of ayahuasca. When people with anxiety ask me if they should do it to heal, I ask them, how much do you need to feel you're in control to be safe? Typically, I find that when people feel a need to be in control, they depend on their mind to do that. Anxiety is an attempt to keep control of the uncontrollable and predict the unpredictable, so ingesting a substance that removes control separates you from your mind, is bound to be difficult. That being said, for some people, that may be exactly what they need to heal. Seeing your world without any control may be a reset that gives you the ability to accept uncertainty and unpredictability. At points, ayahuasca showed me I had to face my fears of uncertainty if I was to overcome them. It also showed me that I was infinitely connected to the universe, whether I was alive in this human form or not. In a way, it showed me that there is no death, so what was I afraid of? Often in Scandinavian cultures and folklore, a dragon is pictured on top of a treasure chest. I had seen that image in some of Dr. Neufeld's presentations, and I accept that you need to slay the dragon to get to the treasure. But for me, it took a long time to really see that I had to face the fear before the treasure would be revealed. Until I learned to face my alarm and even embrace it, my battle with anxiety and alarm seemed futile, and the dragon turned into a hydra. Whenever I cut off its head, it seemed to grow two more. But the dragon was not my enemy. It seems I was trying to slay my protector. The dragon I've come to see is my protective ego. When I was a child, alone and fearful, and my attachment figures were not there for me, my younger self conjured a mythical protective figure, a powerful dragon to keep me from harm. But the dragon did its protective job too well, and it got all fired up over anything and everything that had caused me any trauma in the past. The amygdala and the dragon worked in concert to overreact to anything that had caused me pain in the past. The dragon used his mythical powers to stop me from getting close to anything that hurt me in the past. And what hurt me more than anything else? Love. The love I had for my dad was seen by my ego dragon as something I needed to be kept away from. Once our ego dragons see love as dangerous, love is pushed away and fear fills the space left behind. Since fear is what drives the dragon, 
our lives become progressively ruled by fear and protection and less by love and growth. Another cycle that perpetuates fear, all in the righteous name of the dragon we incarnated to protect us. Ayahuasca paralyzed the dragon of ego that my frightened child created to shield me from pain, so I came face to face with my fears. It's no wonder I kept saying, there's nothing to hold on to. Since the time six years ago I faced the dark night of the soul and danced with the snake for not one night but two, I've realized Aya had many lessons for me. I learned that I am infinitely stronger than I give myself credit for. Going back for a repeat performance after that first experience showed me I would not allow myself to be a victim. If I could have the most terrifying experience of my life and go back the next night, I could go through anything. It also showed me how much I use my thinking and worry as a way of controlling and predicting how excruciatingly painful it was when my ability to control and predict was removed. My experience with ayahuasca also showed me control was an illusion of the mind, and faith in healing of the heart was critical. Faith allowed me to see that it wasn't all up to me. There are things beyond my control, and accepting and loving what is, with a sense of feeling, was a far superior way to live than being limited by the realm of thinking and its false promise of finding security in my head. Feelings cannot be readily vanquished by thought, and there's good reason for that. Feelings are where life is. Faith in something bigger than me, not a religious faith for me, but rather a sense of spirit, gives me a felt sense that I can focus on looking after myself while knowing even that isn't completely up to me. It took months after the experience, but the snake did visit me and show me that I was spirit in human form, and I was divinely protected in both life and death. That knowing precipitated my next journey, the one I'm still on, that of creating a feeling connection to my thinking self. So that was chapter 53, one of the very longest chapters in the book. As I said, it's 108 chapters, and some of them are just a page long. So it's really important that you understand that anxiety is not what we think it is. It's not this machinations of the mind. It's more of this stored alarm that's stored in our body. And I would never have seen that as a traditional allopathic medicine doctor unless I did, you know, go to extreme measures, which is to take LSD, ayahuasca, MDMA, and psilocybin just to understand my own anxious mind and use that knowledge to write the book and to help people really understand it. So thanks for joining me on this particular episode. It was a longer one than normal, but I hope you got a lot out of it. And I hope it gave you some idea that the book may provide you with deeper insights than you've ever seen before, because that's why I wrote it. I wrote it so that you don't have to suffer with anxiety like I did. I wish I knew then what I know now, because it would have saved me a lot of pain. And hopefully the book will save you a lot of pain. So consider getting Anxiety Rx and joining me again on this podcast, our Anxiety Rx. So everything's called Anxiety Rx. The book is called Anxiety Rx. The podcast is called Anxiety Rx. And thank you for joining me. I really, really want to help you not have to deal with chronic anxiety because I know how desperately painful it is. So until next time, don't believe everything you think. Hey, it's Dr. Russ. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll tune in the next time for the Anxiety Rx podcast.